This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to a special episode of Debut, the podcast that follows one crime writer and his novel from the bedroom to the bookshelf. In the previous four episodes, we've heard how our writer, Charlie McGarry, pursued and attained his ambition of having his debut crime novel published. We found out more about his lead character and we have even visited the scene of the crime. Now, with the clock ticking to the publication of his book, The Ghost of Helen Addison, on July 6th, we thought we'd get Charlie some expert advice. The final two episodes before we return after publication for two update episodes are conversations between Charlie and two of the most successful crime writers of recent times. First up, Charlie met Christopher Brookmeyer. Since the mid-90s, Chris has been writing stories that combine classic crime and thriller tropes with dark humour, social commentary and, typically, the geographical and linguistic idiosyncrasies of their Scottish settings. Chris was nearing the end of his promotional duties around his latest novel, Want You Gone, which is the eighth novel, featuring Jack Parlebane, the investigative journalist with whom the author made his breakthrough in Quite Ugly One Morning. Want You Gone is out now, published by Little Brown. that much is the fact that there's always an element of humour in your novels and quite black humour. That's something I've tried to bring into my crime novels. I think it's maybe quite unusual to have that in a crime novel. But I think I maybe did it consciously because I was worried about the thing becoming a bit poor-faced. Because I've got quite an old-fashioned style in a way, that was maybe doubly so. And also because my detective... It is quite a pompous character that I needed something to kind of deflate him a bit. Yeah, yeah. Is it something, is that just something that comes naturally to you? Is that just part of your flow or is it something you consciously weave in? God, I think it was, it was the, this a natural idiom that I realised I was most productive at writing in when I wrote that. I've been writing three books that felt a bit of a slog and I wasn't quite happy with them myself. Then when I wrote Quite Ugly One Morning, I, it was just I slipped into a type of writing that that made sense to me, uh, and I mean I grew up in a house where there was constantly irreverent discussion. When I realised I could turn that into narrative, everything kind of clicked into place. And I think though, what's strange for me is I don't consciously think that how can I write something funny. It seems that 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 idiom brings out the humour, and obviously writing crime, you're going to create extreme circumstances. And one of the things that comes out of that sometimes is an absurdity and a humour. What I find quite telling, though, is I can't go back and put humour in. It emerges while you're looking from the point of view of your characters, at, usually in a highly stressed situation. It emerges during the process, and it's really nigh impossible to go back and add humour. So it's like lines that occur to you only occur to you in the moment of, of while you're writing that scene. 
where it's changed for me is I used to, I would think up sort of fairly absurd scenarios and then have characters behave in a way as straight as possible in an absurd scenario because that's where the humour comes from. Because if you've got absurd characters in an absurd situation, sort of one cancels the other out. But in, in recent times, I've, I've tried to make the books more um, serious and tense in their tone. And the, the, the danger there is if the, if the humour is too over the top, you deflate all the tension out of the scene. So the humour tends to come from the kind of gallows humour of what yeah. characters might say to each other in, in difficult circumstances. I think that makes me jump ahead a wee bit, just to some aspects of your writing that's maybe evolved. Would you agree that the morality in your novels is a little bit more complex and, and, and thus a little bit more real life? It's very satisfying for sometimes for readers to have a, the pure good guys and, and the pure bad guys. And I think this is something that I maybe need to learn. I think that if I think about a character like the Diana Jagger character in The Black Widow, you evoke a bit of sympathy for her. Mm. And, and in that book, the kind of the, the moral lines are a bit blurred. Is that something, again, is that something you've consciously worked on? Uh, it's maybe something that's just evolved rather than that, that I've consciously worked on. And I think, from your point of view, there's something to be said for having a, a far more uh, delineated morality while you're kind of getting used to telling the story. You know, it's almost like you have to learn to, to play straight before you do improvised jazz, you know, so <laughs> because you learn the rules of, of, of what works, what the dynamic is, and that's what I was doing also at that time. You know, I started off and I wrote quite ugly one morning. It was, I created this kind of Aunt Sally figure for a, a villain, you know, somebody that I could pour all the, the things that I detested into one character. And I think what happened after that, I had a lot of fun with that, you know, creating this ridiculous villain. But after that, you start becoming interested in your villain's motivations, and, and the villain can become more interesting than the the hero sometimes. Uh, so it was a, a question of, of the more I learned how to do what I was doing, um, the more I wanted to explore. So I suppose initially you want to find out how to just tell your story, but as as you get more comfortable with it, you think, well, actually, I'll I'll, I'll blur the lines a bit more. I'll, I'll make the uh, the bad guy's motivation will become more of the, the story. You know, be, So uh, sometimes that becomes the most fascinating thing. It depends on the structure. I mean, if you're writing a whodunit, you can't really reveal who the bad guy is. So you mm-hmm. can't explain their motivation. But also, the more you have of life experience, the more you realise the, the morality gets more and more messy and blurry. And, and I, I'm inclined to reflect that when I'm writing. And also, you... As you get older and hopefully wiser, you, you just start to realise the mitigation in a lot of people's behaviour, and indeed in your own behaviour, so much of it is oh, no. stress-based and environment-based and everything else. Yeah, I think for the most part, nobody wants to believe they're the villain. Uh, and that's, that's kind of a, a... It took me a surprise in a long time to realise that when I was writing. You know, no, but nobody thinks... Uh, nobody's congratulating themselves on the genius of their evil plan. You know, they're, they're, for the most part, just about everybody can justify their actions to themselves, and that becomes one of the most interesting things when you're telling a story. Is thinking how extreme can somebody's actions be, and yet they can still find a justification, or ask yourself the question: What was it that led them? And it's incremental; it's increment by increment. They started at one place and ended up somewhere where their, their behaviour is completely abhorrent, but 
there was a path in their own mind, logically, that justified every step of that journey. And that's the kind of thing that just becomes more interesting the more experienced you are as a writer. But it's not something you can take on in your first, second or third novel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, just to kind of go back to the beginning a wee bit, you mentioned earlier that you had three publishers battling over you. You also mentioned that you had an agent. Mm. Did you have much trouble finding an agent? Um, yes and no. I had uh, When I wrote the first three books and I was sort of submitting things on spec and I wasn't really getting much traction anywhere. And then there's always a, you always need a lucky break. And I was working at the Scotsman and Evening News at the time, but it was, I was doing mostly sort of design side of layout subbing back then. And I was one of the few folk in the building at the time who could work an Apple Mac. <laughs> so I was upstairs in the, the Scotsman features desk and I got talking to the critic, who was, the film critic was Angus Wolf Murray, and he had, I think, he might have been involved at the start of uh, Canongate, or certainly his ex-wife was still involved. But um, I got to talk to him about films. I'd worked for Screen International, and he would get me to do the film reviews when I when he was on holiday. And then I'd mentioned to him that I'd written a book, and it was actually the third of the unpublished ones. And he, he read that, and, and he, he really liked it, but. And by the time he'd finished reading it, I'd already written Quite Ugly One Morning. And he said, well, I'd quite like to show this. My cousin's an agent. She said she only takes on three or four new clients a year, but I can get her to read it. Uh, and so she read it and said, this is great. And that was, so that was the, the big break. At the time, I thought, oh, fantastic. When I went down and met her in London, signed up to be represented by her, and thought, well, I might, something might happen in the next six months, you know. And within a fortnight, <laughs> there was a... a an auction because she she had a, a select submission. She knew which editors would be res, um, responsive to this particular book. You know, she wasn't going to fire out every crime editor. She knew which ones would go for it. So there was a degree of experience and, and on her part, but also a degree of serendipity. But I think having written four books, you know, by that point, increased my chances yep. of uh, you know if if I'd got talking to this guy Angus Wolf Murray at a time when I'd written my first or second book, it wasn't very good. It wouldn't have. Yeah, gone on from there. And what was the what was the public reception like to the first book? Um, bear in mind, I was living in England at the time, and I wasn't really aware of you told Boiling a Frog came out, and then went back and read Quite Ugly One Morning. Was that an instant hit in Scotland or in further afield? It was like number one in the uh, whatever the, the chart was at the time. That from, but I think it was like they had a big push for it, and it's a very striking cover, I think they had it at a promotional price level at the time as well I was very surprised because I had this notion that it was going to take a long time to start to spread through word of mouth but um, it was surprisingly quick but also I think because of that opening chapter it got a lot of response positive and negative, you know pe- people were talking about it but also it was a time that was ripe for that book, you know, Irvin Wells Trainspotting had come out a couple of years before and Suddenly, and Alan Warner had been published at that point as well, and there was a, I think there was suddenly a hunger for uh, something that represented the Scotland we knew, rather than the, the sort of like BBC drama Sunday night version of Scotland that you were likely to see. So maybe there was a, a number of factors that were serendipitous. But what I do remember, though, was that the um, Scottish press response was to utterly slaughter it. <laughs> and it was the, worst, the first review I ever got was also one of the worst reviews I ever got, and that was from the Herald. Uh, and they, they said it was thoroughly unpleasant and, and horribly nasty or something like that. And, Are you pleased with that? Um, <laughs> my publishers were delighted. I was I was quite appalled because I thought it was a, 
an unnecessarily brutal review of a first a first novel by a debut writer. You know, it was a it, I thought it smacked of somebody who was a failed writer and was pissed off because it was so disproportionately so vicious. Vicious. Yeah. You think if you're trying to encourage uh, you know new Scottish writing. But uh, I had to get used to it because then I found out that all the Irish writers that I, I met would say, oh, they always get slaughtered by the, the Dublin press and the Glasgow press would give them, would garland them, you know, and, and vice versa. So I'd be getting great reviews in Ireland and absolutely hammered. Every new book that came out in Scotland always gets its worst review in the Herald um, and it would get bad reviews most of the Scottish press for the f- several years before I'd get any decent reviews in Scotland. And I think there was a wee element of... You know, the, of the, the literary critic who's got the unpublished manuscript in the desk drawer. It's funny you mention that time in Irvin Welsh and Alan Warner, and it's strange, but for some reason I didn't categorise you. Although I, at one level, understand that these are, are crime books, but I never really put you in the, that box of, of tartanoir or crime fiction. I always kind of more classified you with the kind of new Scottish urban fiction. I don't know if maybe something to do with the, the you just mentioned the kind of iconic cover and there was more than one iconic cover from that early part of your career do you in any way consider yourself an outsider to the tartan noir to the kind of um, the genre of, of crime fiction not now I mean at, at the time I, I didn't think of myself as a crime writer just because I, I think I had a a hugely ignorant and un- under-informed perspective on crime fiction at the time. I, I thought what I was writing was thriller. You know, I knew I knew it was it a-, a crime and it was mystery to be solved and all that. But to me, the word crime connoted a very specific type of writing, which was your kind of hard-boiled noir, um, proper detectives, re- really well-researched police procedural stuff. Um, largely stuff I didn't read to be, to be honest uh, and it took a while for me to realise that what I was writing would be considered crime because the second book was Country of the Blind which was a big kind of landscape epic thriller story not so much a crime story and it took a while for me to realise that that's what I mean I knew every book I was planning to write was essentially a, a, a sort of crime story but um, I didn't see myself as fitting that comfortably into uh, any category because also I was writing a humorous type of, of book as well so I would sometimes get penned as, pegged as satirical writing sometimes crime writing, sometimes Scottish writing you know, sometimes you see my book in like, three different shelves in the same bookshop because they weren't quite sure where, where to, to put it Something we share in common is I think you were, you mentioned working at the Scotsman um, were you a sub-editor? Mm-hmm. Chris? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah. what I do for a living mm-hmm. um, when, when you went into journalism, what was your was your aspiration to be a journalist or no? I was going to say, I bet your copy editor is going to love you because uh, you you will provide really clean manuscripts. Um, I've just had a discussion with editors last week about that. That sub editors uh, they do all the things that the copy editor's been hired to do <laughs> in advance. I actually got copy edit back once. And the copy editor was a freelance and had changed every instance of said Martin to Martin said. And I was utterly baffled. I thought I'd got through my whole life without realising there was a convention about this. And it wasn't. It was because the, the copy was, was so clean that the freelancer was concerned that it would look like she hadn't done any work. So she changed everything um, so that it looked like But Sorry, I, I digress. No, I didn't want to be a reporter. Uh, I had no ambitions in that respect. I, I, I kind of fell into the, the, being a sub-editor. I was 
when I was at university, I was involved at one point in the university newspaper, and I, what I loved about it was the production side of it. I loved page layout and design, and I kind of wanted to do a bit of that. And um, I, so I got this, what was supposed to be a junior sub-editor's position at Screen International, and it very quickly became apparent it wasn't really a junior sub-editor's position, it's just that's kind of what they had the budget for, but it was kind of in at the deep end. Uh, and so, obviously, I learned a lot about house style and... and, and um, how to shape copy um, but I, even then I wasn't thinking I want to work my way up to being a reporter it was just something to do post-graduation but I wanted to write fiction that was only thing vocationally that I was driven towards Right, okay, that's really interesting you had that, that mindset at the tender age of your early 20s and I think it took me a lot longer to get there to realise that that's what I wanted to do well, certainly in my 30s before I started writing seriously um, take a while for you to kind of uh, explain to people what sub-editors do that was always an ongoing right. battle and you'd have to explain they say oh so it's in fact some of the, the, the reporters we work with especially at screen they were all these kind of Oxbridge types and they thought the sub-editors were kind of like uh, skilled tradesmen <laughs> you yeah. know? and you'd have to pretty much drum it into them that not our job or we're here because we write better than you yeah. you know yeah. <laughs> Uh, that, that usually took some impressing upon them. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Um, my, my character is a guy called Leo Moran, um, and he's very much an outsider. He's, he's got a kind of psychic ability, which he uses to help solve crimes. But he ends up having quite a strange relationship with the police, shall we say. He's not a journalist, he's not really got a, a game, he's just, he's a bit of a kind of connoisseur, a bit of a, a bit of a pompous fellow. And just something you said earlier about um, Parley being different from, from, from the way you are, Leo's different from the way I am, and he'll say things that I would never, that I might mm. think, but I would never dare say. Can you speak a wee bit more about that, just about how empowering that is, having a guy that's uh, almost like you're the kind of superhero of your Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of the pleasures of writing, that you get to have, um, well, what the French call l'esprit d'escalier, uh, which is the thing that you wish you'd said, and you remember it yeah. as you walk down the stairs after the argument you just lost, and that gives you the, the chance to have all these one-liners. And I, I remember... Uh, it's a long story, but uh, I'd, I'd gone to see Ed Byrne at one of his first years at Edinburgh, and we'd, um, but uh, and actually it was before that he had got 
it was his, the guy was sharing a flat with at the time was Brendan Burns, the Australian comedian. And I, I'd given Brendan a lift home one night from one of his shows in, in Edinburgh and I'd given him quite ugly one morning. And I saw him about a year later and he'd read that and he'd read, I think he'd read Country of the Blind at that point. But I remember meeting him in Edinburgh and I'm saying, there's no way you're this cool. <laughs> I think he got that, that there was a lot of... That uh, he was absolutely right because there was absolutely no way I was that cool, but he got that I was projecting a whole load of uh, desires and fantasies onto this, yeah. this character, and that's actually kind of I've been uh, almost like making up for it ever since with Parlabane because I made him quite insufferable with the first few books. He was just so full of himself, so I started treating him really badly after that yeah. to to compensate for it. That's why in Boiling a Frog he starts off in jail, you know, to to start teaching him some humility. But it is the, the fun part, and it was what led to, I suppose, to um, one of my best-known villains, which was Simon Darcourt, because he was kind of like the anti-Parlabane. It was the, someone who would be quite seductive, and, and so I would write about him in a very cool way. He would His opinions would always be really edgy and, and humorous, inviting the reader to agree with him, which is what I was doing with Parlabane. But in this case, it would turn out that he's utterly... Deranged, and the further it went, you know, you, you start following the logic, and yeah, yeah, there's a point at which you think, oh wait a minute, I can't, can't yeah. go along with this. You've taken yeah. that a wee bit too far. So that there was actually, I called him Simon Darcourt, but I kind of, I toyed at one point with calling him something like Simon Descalier because that's entirely what he was. He yeah. was the embodiment of every grudge that you ever uh, had, or every every uh, comeback that you never got to say to somebody. And it's because also he was partly inspired by somebody that I once knew who would always tell you the the the, the sort of last word story that you know never happened. Yeah. You know, but yeah. but he would tell it as if it did as happen. As if it happened. And you always knew when he was lying because he would say, and his sort of final line was, and he just looked at me. And he thought, well, if you've actually got a a story to tell, you can you can see how somebody responded or what was said. Because nobody just lo- looks at you and, and you know, or, or, or doffs their cap and says, you know what, you've skewered me there with that. You know? He threw up his hands in defeat. Mm. <laughs> I'm really interested in the way that writers uh, work. And uh, can you give us some idea what, first of all, in terms of how do you approach a book? How much planning do you do beforehand? Do you do character biographies, biographies, for example? Do you have a skeleton? Or is it a much more organic process that you let the characters develop and the plot develop as you go? And also, can you speak a little bit about your writing day? Uh, these days I plan things a lot more than I used to. I'll try and map out the story. to and Not in you know, fine detail, but I'll, I think the last few books, there's been a lot of... Sort of twists in them and a lot of it's predicated upon being able to misdirect the reader uh, and it's almost I always say it's like telling a joke you know you need to know the punchline first and then you can build up um, ways to take the the audience's uh, eye off where it ought to be so that when the punchline is delivered it has the maximum impact um, so with every book, I suppose, you've always started with the punchline in as much as knowing what is going to ultimately be revealed about whatever the villain's up to or, or who done it. In the past, I would just have a... I'd, I'd start writing to see where the story took me. And sometimes it would it would take me into very, very complicated places. And I'd, I'd say to my wife, you know, I'm, I'm totally tied in knots here. And mm-hmm. 
would often in those days go to the pub and I'm just trying to explain it all and at some point she would bounce stuff back off me and it, it would become clear where the story had to go it got particularly complicated when I wrote One Fine Day in the Middle of the Night because I had about five or six different plot strands going on with all these different characters who are in, in different parts of the, the oil rig and it's a book that I'm sure if you look at it now you'd probably assume was carefully planned out and it really wasn't I was totally winging it I don't I've never sort of sketched out character biographies or right. anything like that that to me always has to evolve in the telling yeah. I think there's this symbiosis between the story and the character so you don't want to map out the story so much that the characters feel like they're on a rail because you know, once you know about the decisions your character would make that changes how they would investigate it or it changes decisions they might make so it always seems to be to me a, a process of balancing uh, how much you know about the character and how much you know about the story and try and let one influence the other yeah sure um, I always felt like back in the 80s this was the thing I was trying to avoid you'd get all these kind of 80s crime stroke action movies which would have a great interesting premise and set up and they always were concluded by uh, the male lead just going on a rampage and shooting everybody yeah, and yeah. so there was nothing distinct about you know that, how that character resolved their story uh, and so, so to me that was the crucial thing is that that your character solves the story in a way that no other character would have done not to say no other character could have done but that the way they did it somehow makes sense um, so as, as a reader you, you, you feel satisfied you feel like that character the way they, they brought about a resolution was was unique to them yep. and fitted with the story do you do a certain amount of words a day or a certain amount of hours a day what's the environment you work in does it change going right back to the beginning I used to write in the kitchen you know, I would be living in flats and the kitchen was always somewhere that was warm and I would set up my computer in there uh, and that changed when I moved to the house I'm in now um, it was a sort of an extra public room and my wife said you should make this an office to work in it's decorated to look like an office it feels like a place to work rather than uh, just a corner of the house but I, I generally write in a sort of office hours I've, I've never been one for burning the midnight oil you know, past a certain time of day the neurons aren't firing when it comes to the creative process so the, the danger is because it's such a compelling process and you will you know it, it becomes the thing that is in your thoughts almost every waking hour that it, it can take over to such yeah. an extent that you end up a slave to it my wife talks about that says when I get towards the end of a book I'm really uh, no company because I'm getting too consumed by it yeah I remember Ian Rankin talking about this that you know, sometimes he when he's so consumed by a book when he goes out he, he, he can't socialise properly he can't engage with people properly because his mind's just in a different place have you got any way that you unwind for that do you do any meditations or any break do you take any breaks like Beethoven used to do and go for walks or anything I, I go f- for walks all the time mm-hmm. um, but it's not necessarily a way of uh, relaxing from it it's actually how I do it right uh, I, and it, this started way back in, I was living in Edinburgh and I wrote quite early one morning and before that in fact, I, I would just go for a walk around the blocks three times four times a day just 15 minutes um, and now uh, a huge amount of my books are, are written by me going for a walk and dictating it on my phone and I get back and transcribe it and tidy it up and so uh, the, 
I'm now if I'm even if I'm driving somewhere I'll end up transcribing things or right. dictating rather and because it I find the action of, of walking or driving there's something about apparently like driving same as like housework some things that take up certain parts of the brain apparently it frees up the sort of creative unconscious so and, and these are things that I'll, I'll use that we use to write but they're obviously they're not so good for the unwinding because if I'm out on a walk my brain will inevitably start um, working on whatever book I'm, I've got underway at that point and similarly I go a lot of, I go running um, usually about once a week I'll do a, a, a loop near where I live and that ends up partly it, it's, it's good for it's a triage thing it shakes out all the rubbish from my head and whereas if I'm on a walk I'll think in terms of dialogue or even actual narrative description if I'm out running it's more like the big picture you're not thinking minutely I'm sort of thinking big associations or where the story's going um, so it, it, I find it relaxing and conducive, productive at the same time there is a stress to it because you're concentrating on one thing and one thing only exclusively for sometimes months at a time uh, and I, I have a I have a dental splint because I grind my teeth really? <laughs> so much oh. uh, during the night. And I think, I mean, it could just be something that naturally I do, but I do think it's associated with spending all day concentrating on the same thing. Because I was going to my dentist so often for like, I was smashing my fillings, smashing my teeth. Really? Uh, and my dentist said, you know, you're obviously grinding your teeth in the night. So he made me a dental splint and I've, I'm on to about my seven splint. It's been. Must be almost a decade of wearing these things. Right. <laughs> so I've not had a filling since. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's funny because I'll go back and he'll say, you'll, you'll ask me to show what's going on with it, and it's like, looks like the dog's chewed it. You know, it's, <laughs> and I think that is a, a symptom of a stress of the job. Right. And just the very last thing I'd like to ask you. Personally, talking about publicity, when you came into the room earlier, you were just telling us about um, the amount of stuff you've been doing for Want You Gone, your latest release. Um, so you, you, you're on the road a lot, you do a lot of public events, you've been very generous with your time with us today. It's something that maybe I'm, I'm a little bit ambivalent about, being quite a private person. It maybe goes against the grain a wee bit. As I'm doing it and as I'm doing things like these podcasts, it's just like anything, you come out of your comfort zone a bit and you start to enjoy it a little bit. Mm-hmm. How were you at first, how were you with the, the publicity did that, was that something that came naturally to you or was it something you had to kind of get used to? A bit of both in that it's, you, I realised, very quickly realised this was something I'd given no thought to whilst writing. You know, you have fantasies about your book being out there but you don't think about yeah. that side of it. Uh, and also at that time there were far fewer festivals and, and the public role of the writer was, was considerably less. And a lot of people become writers because they don't want to talk to other people yeah. and they certainly maybe don't want to stand up in a, a, a room and talk to a hundred people. Uh, and I always felt quite sympathetic towards writers who, given that the marketing of the book became, uh, that became so much a big part of it, was public appearances, that m- maybe people were drawn to writing because they were very private and, and, and very introspective. Uh, I felt... I hadn't worried about it and then suddenly I'm there having to do an event but at that point I was I was well served by the fact that when I was at school we did a lot of debating and public speaking it was all down to one teacher in fact um, this guy who had started a 
he had an interesting debate in public speaking. So St. Luke's Barhead ended up having this really great debate in public speaking tradition. And things that I'd learned uh, doing that, and, and, and a wee bit of drama at school as well, but the same principles, how to project your voice, how to take questions, um, it all kind of kicked in. But I remember thinking, I'm quite fortunate that I've had some degree of training for this. Mm-hmm. And I do enjoy talking in front of a room and I think also I realised that most of what I was reading was humorous that there's something very very gratifying about an audience laughing uh, and also if you're up standing in front of a room and you're, you're new to it you've no idea whether you're boring them rigid whereas if they're laughing you're getting a response and it's, it's, it's quite reassuring uh, so I started to enjoy it but I remember what really brought it home was again reading that first uh, absolutely <laughs> brutal review was thinking this book's out there now you know and people can say what they like or also they can hold you to hold you to account for the things that are in there and it's that point I'm thinking Jesus what I've put in this book you know it's, it's whether from the jobby on the mantelpiece to mutilated corpses and all sorts of other opinions really really mouthy opinions that I'd put in there and it hadn't even occurred to me until it was already out there that you know people might not like this and they'll come and ask you about it you're working so hard to create an experience for the person who's reading the book but unlike in other arts you're not there at the point at which they do experience it you know, if, if, whereas if, you know, if you're a musician for the most part you're gonna, if you're playing a show you'll see how the audience responds so the closest you get is when you're reading in front of an audience or taking questions and finding out what it was they got what, mm-hmm. what, what they responded to because the, the, the frustrating thing is it's almost like you've created these, a great joke and you can never be there when someone reads the punchline. So if you've written a, a, a crime story, you're never there when somebody experiences that killer twist that you've been putting all your effort into shaping. But you might hear them at an event come up and say that they loved it. And, and so the, the, the event side of it is the, the chance to actually connect with the folk that you're writing for. Next time on Debut, Charlie meets Val McDermott to talk forensics, when not to write, and why Charlie really ought to get an agent. Publishers are not your friend always. So they told me they were my friend. No, they did. <laughs> Debut is produced by me, Neil White, with help from Martin Gregg. There's more at debutpodcast.com and you can let me know what you think of the show on Twitter at debutpodcast. Thanks again to Chris Brookmeyer for talking to Charlie for this episode. The music for this series is by Charlie's brother, Mick McGarry. Charlie's novel is The Ghost of Helen Addison. It's published by Polygon on July the 6th. Keep up with him on Twitter at Charles E. McGarry and at charlesemcgarry.com where you can find extracts, pictures and videos. fact. 
a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.